This episode of Literary Treks is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create a professional website, blog, portfolio, and even an online store with the Squarespace Commerce feature. For a free trial and 10% off your first purchase on new accounts, go to squarespace.com and use offer code TREK6. And also by TrekFan. TrekFan isn't just a Star Trek fan club, it's a challenge. You will explore new places, learn new things, and collaborate with other fans to solve puzzles, complete real-life mission objectives, and win great prizes. To face your first challenge and find out more, head on over to trekfan.org. You're listening to Trek FM. taking all these books? I thought I'd take some light reading, in case I got bored. Welcome everyone to another episode of Literary Treks, our dedicated Star Trek books and comics podcast. I'm Christopher Jones, and with me, as he is every week, is my co-host, Matthew Rushing. Matthew, how are things going for you this week? Going pretty well, Chris. Nothing super exciting going on, although uh, I was uh, talking to a a listener on, on one of the Trek BBS boards and uh, about literary treks and they've been catching up on the shows and they were listening to uh, one of our James Swallows interviews and apparently I, I had mentioned uh, on that uh, Johnny Football and his destruction of the Sooners and the listener was lamenting that and it was reminding me how excited I am that college football season is just around the corner Chris and I know that you are excited as well as an Alabama fan so and we're going to be going head to head we we are, and actually we'll be coming down to your house this year. So, uh, yeah, I'm excited too. We're less than 100 days to the start of the season, and um, bad news for our Notre Dame fans out there. It looks like um, the Irish have lost their quarterback, so uh, we'll see. Man, they can't catch we'll a break these days. I feel sorry for them. <laughs> yeah. All right, but they do have cool helmets. From that is true. Time, so. That is true. Nothing better than having a gold painted helmet. Not those crazy ones. Just, just the yeah, gold. It's it just awesome. seemed, you know, was nice last year. But let's not talk about football today. Let's talk about Star Trek. And um, the first thing we have up in news this week, Matthew, is something that reminded me of being a kid. And this is a book where they are reprinting all. 88 cards from the original Topps trading card collection of Star Trek cards. You know what's really exciting about this too, Chris, is that they're reprinting as well the 22 rare stickers. Now, you know, Get Glue has gotten really popular these days, and I think it's really all because, not because we like to tell people what we're watching, because we like to collect stickers. I mean... You just want to exactly, get those stickers. Exactly. And so this is really exciting. I mean, who cares about the cards? 22 rare stickers. I mean, goodness. These are going to be all over the house. You know it. Well, I have to tell you, well, you're right about Get Glue because I got a notice from them the other day that I had unlocked the option to order physical copies of my stickers. 
And I don't know, I kind of scratched my head a little bit and I thought, well, who would actually do this? But who knows? Maybe they will. I'm hoping that now these original cards are from 1976, but I'm hoping that we can get a feature from a decade later, you know, early to mid 80s when the scratch and sniff stickers were so popular when I was in middle school. I'm hoping that these reprints are scratch and sniff where you can scratch the sticker and it'll actually smell like the character. That's exciting. I mean, uh, you know, if you had scratch and sniff and, you know, you got a wharf, you'd, you'd have that nice mossy smell with a hint of lilac. Um, you know, if yes. you had um, Kirk, you'd smell that nice smell of the Tiberius cologne. Um, you know, of course, <laughs> if you've got Spock, you have Ponfar, which, you know, drives the ladies wild. I mean, so this is really exciting. Right. And of course, uh, you got Scotty, you got Red Shirt and, uh, you know, perfect for that um, engineer on the prowl. It sounds like you're proposing kind of a product crossover collaboration between Abrams Comic Arts here, who's publishing this book, uh, and the new perfume and cologne collection that has come out. Uh, Chris, I'm just bouncing ideas off of what you've already said. I think we've got <laughs> something here. I don't know why they're not doing this. Uh, you know, scratch and sniff cards with stickers. I mean, goodness. I would be snatching this book up so fast. And, you know, this is really fun for fans. It's only 1130 on Amazon. So that's a really great price to be able to get your hands on these reprints of uh, these really rare cards. And again, 22 rare stickers. <laughs> You're just excited about the stickers, aren't well, you? Well, yeah. And, you know, it also is kind of cool. Um, you're going to get Paula Block who heads uh, Trek Licensing at Paramount, who will write the text along with Terry Erdman. And uh, he wrote the DS9 Companion, which is hands down, I think, one of the best things written for Trek. Um, and, and just companion-wise, it's the most comprehensive oh, because he was able to be on the set. It's the most comprehensive, uh, yeah. So that's a really exciting yeah. to see him uh, doing this with uh, Paula. Yeah, definitely. Now, Terry and Paula are actually married, and they do a lot of stuff together. And uh, Paula also helped write the DS9 Companion, although Terry is the headline author on there, and I think did the majority of that work on that book. But yeah, the DS9 Companion is really, really great. It's possibly the best. With no offense to friend of the show, Larry Nemechek, because the Next Generation Companion is also a great book. But the, uh, the DS9 Companion is definitely the most in-depth book where... That it has so much background information. So uh, hopefully Terry will be able to bring uh, a lot of that uh, flair to this card book and maybe give us some of the uh, b background behind how Tops came to make these cards and you know some of the history about the collectibles and all because uh, they are they are kind of rare. So if you're into Star Trek collectibles and you know you want to have a comprehensive collection, it's not so easy to get your hands on the actual cards these days. But this book will definitely give you a look both the fronts and the backs. And of course, as Matthew is so excited about <laughs> those 22 stickers. It's just exciting. You know, I mean, who doesn't want more stickers for their now gene? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, let's go on to the next item here. And this is one that I saw the other day. Doug Drexler 
talking about the fall. Now, I believe on last week's show, we talked a little bit about the cover art for Revelation and Dust, which showed the new Deep Space Nine as designed by Starfleet. And Doug Drexler is going into a lot more information about that here. Yeah, Doug um, did his article, and then Andy Probert and uh, Douglas E. Graves, who also helped to design uh, the new Deep Space Nine, had another article. So these two go together. They're on StarTrek.com. We'll link them both. Um, Both of them had some great pictures um, with the articles, um, giving different views of the new Deep Space Nine. It was really fantastic. And uh, what I thought was really cool is that uh, Doug was talking about how, you know, he loves Federation and Starship design. So he really liked the idea of being able to create a Starfleet-ized, you know, Deep Space Nine. Um, What would that look like? And he loved the... um, the sensibilities, the visual sense that Andy really brought to this um, with, uh, you know, his sense on Starfleet and what this would look like. And giving that stylized version of what David R. George III had, had explained a little bit in his Typhon Pack series books where Deep Space Nine was being reconstructed. And so uh, this is really exciting. I really love that Star Trek.com is paying so much attention to the rebuilding of Deep Space Nine in, in the same way that, you know, they they would um, rebuilding uh, anything in the Star Trek universe or something new like uh, the new J.J. film. And so this is great. Yeah, I think you mean in the same way that they would something that's on screen and therefore officially canon, right? Exactly. They're actually giving exactly. that same kind of attention to something here that's in the expanded universe. Um, yeah, I agree with Doug on that. And I, and I like the way that even though this design is Starfleet-ized, it's definitely not a design that Starfleet has traditionally built. You know, we've seen stations like K-7 or Regula or Vanguard in the novels or the space dock around Earth that uh, they all have kind of a similar Starfleet look and shape and design to them. Whereas this station very much maintains that overall Cardassian architecture that we're familiar with. But as he says, it, it does Starfleet eyes that. It's a, t- it's a tough word to say, Starfleet eyes. It really is. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, Douglas Graves, too, was just talking about how he really loves this whole station uh, top to bottom. He, he loved... Uh, the new core uh, they created, um, just kind of this federation, he calls it Neo-Flow, to take on such classic lines that we know. And mm-hmm. um, and then he really enjoys, the, they have these magnetic rings you'll see on the bottom and the top. Apparently, those are uh, suspended defense rings, which is just a cool idea. And then there really is what we were talking about last week when we were looking at that picture. There's a huge environmental recreation dome inside that, that has a, a ginormous park inside of it with like mountains. And it reminds me the idea of the Genesis cave a little bit, you know, when you, when go in that in the wrath of Khan, that's kind of the picture uh-huh. that I'm getting for this uh, recreational dome. And then of course there'll be a new promenade. And um, so this is going to be a lot of fun. I'm really hoping Star Trek magazine will give us the ins and outs of this with a nice fold-out poster. Um, I would be picking that up so fast off the shelf uh, to get that, to see what this really looks like inside and out. Like maybe a nice cutaway, 
you know, like they used to do those nice cutaway yeah, posters. Yeah, that would be cool. You know, it reminds me, there used to be a Star Trek magazine. It wasn't published for very long. It was published um, early 2000s, around 2002 or so. And it it was a little bit larger format than Communicator or the current Titan publication was. But they did that type of thing. They had extensive articles and pullouts that were very, very detailed diagrams and artwork of ships and stations and such. Well, and and it makes me hope, even if they don't do that for the, you know, Star Trek magazine, this will be something that they can definitely do on StarTrek.com. And they've already shown the willingness to put these things on, on there. So I think that it would really behoove them to do that for fans, to give them as much of this as possible. Uh, because the fall is really a series, I think, right now that they are really trying to push. This is going to be a big deal. Um, and so I'm really excited that Star Trek.com is, is taking the literary universe so seriously. It's, it's fantastic. Yeah, it really is. It really is. It, well, it's the way to move Star Trek forward at this point. Again, no offense to JJ, but the vast majority of fans really want to see the prime timeline, as we call it now, moving forward. And the fall appears to be setting up as that huge turning point where we're going to take that next step forward with our characters with our different factions within the Star Trek universe. So so yeah, it is good that that um Star Trek.com being CBS is really behind that and really pushing that forward. Well Chris, uh something else that I came across online when I just perusing around uh saw that Empire Online, uh, Empire magazine had done a whole special on the expanded universe of Star Trek and and they picked out 12 of their top series that they think people should read. And so in light of the new JJ film, these were the series that they thought um, any any person or any fan would love to kind of jump into. And so uh, they didn't really put these in any specific order. I didn't, you know, they weren't ranking them. They were just giving them us their favorites. Um, what were some of the ones that they had picked out? Well, yeah, like you said, seeing Empire do this was very interesting to me that, that Empire would do an entire feature about Star Trek literature. But the first one that they mention is the Vanguard series, which uh, we have talked about before with uh, David Mack, Dayton Ward, and, and everyone. And uh, this is a great series for those who love the TOS universe. It, it takes, you know, the thing about TOS is that we always felt from the TV show that there was one ship pretty much flying around and we only get to follow this one crew everywhere they go. And the universe feels a little bit compartmentalized in that way. And so one thing that the Vanguard series does is kind of opens up that TOS era universe to show that there's a lot more going on out there than just what's happening to Kirk and his crew. Yeah, that's so cool that they uh, put this as a great series, uh, especially, you know, when we talked to Dayton about uh, the end of the series and, and we've talked to David Mack. And this is one of those series where a lot of people, if you've read this series, you know, Emmett was talking about how he gives this book series to everyone. Um, and right. so yeah. this is a great series, well worth the read. If you like TOS, but you kind of maybe get tired of just seeing Kirk, Spock, and McCoy uh, and, and the Enterprise crew, this sets um, you on a station, a lot like a kind of a Deep Space Nine, basically, in the original series. Uh, and there's a lot of mythology that goes on with this series as well. 
It's very deep. It's well done, um, which leads me to the next series, which they picked out the New Earth series, which this is really cool. This is an older series. It's been around for a long time now. Um, but this is set during the, the second five-year mission uh, after the motion picture and uh, the Enterprise is on escort duty for a group of colonists for a new M-class planet and creating a new settlement, um, kind of giving you a great picture of what it's like to live in the 23rd century to be a colonist on the, the outer rim you know, of, of space at that point. So this is really exciting. Right, yeah. This is a series that, of course, I've heard of, but I've actually never read. And for those who do want more TOS second five-year mission. There you go, right there in these books. And it relates a little bit to the next one on their list, in a sense, which is the Lost Era series, because once again, in both cases, you're you're filling in the blanks. You know, New Earth between the motion picture and the Wrath of Khan, what happened? Well, we don't know. You get it there. And then the Lost Era series, again, we're wondering, you know, what happened with Sulu on the Excelsior? What happened with Sulu on the Excelsior? You know, what happened with Riker when he served on the Pegasus or Picard uh, after the Stargazer, but before he got to the Enterprise? You know, what happened when, um, this is kind of an odd one here, Uhura, Cisco, Tuvok, and your favorite, Dr. Beverly Crusher, Matthew, working together as a super team on Romulus. And it's kind of funny that the the universe being so so small that those characters would all come together on on a special mission, but yet it is in there in the Lost Era series. Well, everybody wants to know Beverly Chris, and so that's really just it. So, yeah, the, these are some great books, um, and that leads into the next series. Interestingly enough, which is the Stargazer series. Um, there's a whole series devoted to Picard as captain of the Stargazer and his adventures there. Um, really uh, facing down pirates, um, shenanigans with the Mirror Universe and Montgomery Scott. Um, so there's lots of cool things that happen. And then, of course, really giving you an unseen picture of Jack Crusher, who is Wesley's father, and being able to see him before he had died and giving you that backstory as well. So that's pretty exciting. Don't, don't you mean allegedly Wesley's father? Because, you know, there are a lot of fans out there who still insist that Jean-Luc Picard is, in fact, Wesley's father. I wouldn't wish that <laughs> on Jean-Luc. I have too much respect for him to say that he fathered that child. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to blame Jack Crusher for that. Uh, I don't even think he's really okay. Beverly's son. Uh, I just I don't want to blame him on anybody but Jack because I don't know Jack. So, <laughs> so, so you think that Wesley is Jack Crusher's son, but Beverly's not actually his mother. She just somehow she's just ended a surrogate. Yeah, um, that's that's my personal <laughs> canon. <laughs> okay, all right. Well, let's. Okay, you mentioned Montgomery Scott, and let's move on to the Corps of Engineers series. Now, this is a series that, um, well, definitely started as an ebook series. Did they ever, I guess they've done collections in paperback. Yes, they've done collections of these, and uh, these are really popular books. I mean, uh, Keith DeCanado is a big part of this series, um, and this is a this is a series that uh, uh, people just love, and I haven't gotten a chance to get into this yet. You know, there's so many Trek books, and, and I'm trying to catch up. I just, I never had an e-reader back when these started to come out, and, and that's why I missed a lot right. of them. And so, um, yeah. 
And uh, the same thing that happened here with the New Frontier series that they recommend with uh, Mackenzie Calhoun and, of course, Shelby. And my favorite, Vulcan medical officer, Salar. I may have to start reading this <laughs> yes. just because of this revelation. I did not know that. Uh, Peter David, very popular author, fantastic. This is a great series, and, and especially now um, with all that uh, Peter David has been through recently with his health. Uh, if you haven't read a series, I would recommend picking this up um, just to support David. Um, it's a great series, and you're yeah. supporting a really great man. So uh, this is a fantastic series. Yeah, definitely. Now, New Frontier is a series I did read from when it very first came out. And it's been years and years and years since I've ever read any New Frontier stuff. But I really enjoyed them. And, you know, you've got your Salar there. Well, for me... Shelby? You know? You know who's... No, not Shelby. You know who's the ops officer on the Excalibur? Uh, It's none other than Robin Leffler. Oh, goodness. Wow. This is the perfect series for both of us, Chris. I mean, goodness. <laughs> exactly. Uh, yeah, we might have to go through this series just so that we can gush over Leffler and Salar as we uh, walk our way through it. <laughs> so Right. We'll just we'll just have a our own book. It's just all the scenes with Salar and Lucky. Exactly. That, that's, it's going to be a really boring yeah. series for you guys on the show. I apologize when we get into that, but uh, just bear with us. Um, this was exciting. Yes. You know, they said that they were not going to cover the direct TV spinoff novels. So they weren't going to count the relaunches for Voyager, Deep Space Nine, or any of those. But apparently, Deep Space Nine Season 8 was so big and so good, they couldn't neglect putting it on here, which is fantastic because we've been talking about it um, and uh, doing that as our retrospective series. And um, I don't blame them. It is fantastic. And without really having this series, I don't know where Trek books would be in the same place as they are today. Right. It is the DS9 relaunch or season eight series, if you want to call it that, that I think set the tone for where we are now with Star Trek novels and and how the different series build upon themselves and how they uh, intermix with one another. So they had to put this on here. I, I can't believe that there was any possibility, even if they said we're not going to do TV spinoff continuation series, uh, you couldn't make a list without putting this on there. Um, and the next one is kind of related to that. It's the Titan series. And, you know, really, that's a spinoff of Nemesis when Riker leaves and goes to take command of the Titan. Which is very true. And honestly, one of my favorite series in the books uh, recently, a lot of great exploration happens. Uh, you know, the Titan is sent off to explore strange new worlds uh, after the Destiny series specifically to... Um, giving them an opportunity to, to see and, and find out things that we haven't really seen as much before or explain some things that we have. It's a great series. It's a lot of fun. Riker's crew is very interesting. It's the most diverse crew in Starfleet, so there are tons of new alien races as well uh, on his ship. And, um, you know, you get a chance to watch uh, the Rikers in space. And really... Um, I love the way that uh, Riker and Troy are written in this series. And then, of course, uh, Tuvok is their second officer. And um, so this is a great series for those who really like some of those 24th century characters and just want to see them, what they're doing now. 
Yeah. You know, the Titan series is the one that fans make the most noise about this book series being what they want to see as the next television series, the next official television series. And I think it could be very interesting, although I think it would be Overall, the feeling of the show would probably be very much next generation type show, although I assume they would serialize it more as a modern show. But for me, I think the biggest obstacle to this, like you said, this is the most diverse crew. And there are a lot of senior officers, you know, key characters in the Titan novel series that would just be difficult to do on a weekly basis on a TV series. I mean, they would, the budget for that show would just be incredible because so much of the environment and the characters would have to be completely cgi it it would and unfortunately you'd probably end up with something more like the gorn from enterprise and so i say allow titan just to exist in the novels um because it, it won't be done justice on television unfortunately unless you know that is a series that would make a fantastic animated series, uh, a Clone Wars-style yeah, type of animated series. You, you could really yeah, get away with that. Uh, and that's where Star Trek could really um, benefit. You know, as silly as the animated series was for TOS, um, having all the actors do the voices um, and getting to do some aliens all the time on the ship because all you do is draw them really paid off in that series that's one of the things i love the most about it and so uh seeing a star trek animated series i I say go for that one well that's a good point too in titan although you might not get jonathan frakes and marina surtis back to to do an actual tv series you might not want them i mean we saw them in these are the voyages and that was 10 years ago you might not be able to pull off that this is happening right after the events of Nemesis, and now they're on this ship, you know, because the the actors have aged quite a bit since then. But you could definitely have them contribute their voices to the characters of Riker and Troy. Well, and we've already and seen... Um, that would work beautifully. Exactly. We've already seen Jonathan Frakes do voice work. Uh, he did, I believe, Gargoyles for Disney mm-hmm. back in the 90s. And yeah. so, and I think even Marina did as well. So yeah, they, they both have experience doing this. And yeah. uh, so that would be great. Yeah, that would be great. Well, Next series is is a fan favorite from Keith the Canigo, the uh, Klingon Empire series, um, really diving into the Klingon Empire. In fact, the whole series is just Klingons. So if you are a fan of the Klingons, this is the series for you. Um, this is where we still spell Kronos with a Q. Um, if you've seen the new movie, you know they spell it with a K. Uh, and so... Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh... It's spelled with a Q. I'm sorry, yeah. JJ. Um, but, which is interesting because the comic also spell it with a Q. So uh, yes. I, I I have a feeling that in the film it's spelled with a K because um, it's easier for a mass audience who doesn't know Star Trek the way we do to understand exactly how you yes. say that. Or... So. Someone working on the artwork for the new movie is not really a Star Trek fan and didn't know that it's <laughs> Well, I'm pretty sure that Robert Orsi <laughs> and uh, Kurtzman, they know that it's spelled with a Q uh, because the comics spell it with a Q. Um, and so... Yeah, I'm talking about some oh, other people oh, oh, working yeah, that's on possible. the visuals of the film. Just... <laughs> but anyway, um, anyway. Now, is it true that each copy of 
books from the Klingon Empire series come with a little packet, a sample packet of a gach attached to the cover. Either that or they are a little bit like those books in Harry Potter that can bite you. Um, so just be careful. Oh, uh, yeah, they're um, like Targ books, you know, um, so. Yeah, Targ exactly. edition. I was it's re- Just be careful if you get that edition, you know, if you pick it up at local half price books or something like that. Uh, you're, yeah, um, they bite. Um, so make sure Careful you just put a belt around it or something. Um. <laughs> yeah. Well, the next one on here is one that I know you and I both really like, which is the Department of Temporal Investigations series, because I, I just really like time travel stories. And I, I like the idea that at some point in the future, the Federation develops an organization which is charged with overseeing the timeline. Which is a lot of fun, and of course, as we all know, um, they are actually anagrams for the characters we see in the X-Files, Mulder and Scully, um, Dolmer and Luxley, and uh, also uh, what really makes these fantastic books is that if you want to see how every time travel story that you've ever seen in Star Trek is somehow related, read these books, because practically every Trek episode that has time involved in it is put into these two novels and make to make sense it's fantastic um and aw- awesome funny you would never have thought those characters from trials and tribulations could be fantastic characters in book but they'll they'll make you laugh they're really good um and uh just like on tv they still really hate captain kirk um so <laughs> it's it's a fun series it really is yeah i really enjoyed that one by uh, christopher l bennett it is. Uh, Christopher L. Bennett does a fantastic job with this series. And so uh, I, I suggest it's only two books. So just pick it up. You will not be sorry. Um, as well as the... Well, two books now, but more to come, I'm sure. I hope so. I really do. Um, this is a great series. Although he's working on his new Enterprise series uh, set after the Romulan War. So uh, I'll, I'll let him yeah. finish those two before I uh, start bugging him for another Temporal Investigations. <laughs> um, well, the next series is, is a great series. I really like it. It's a it's a it's basically a crossover season. It's the Typhon Pack series. You get all these different aliens. Uh, the Romulans, the Breen, the Tholians, the Gorn, the Zinkethi, and the Kinshaya. Uh, this is a, a fantastic look at uh, just kind of what you expect when you get this Warsaw Pact uh, against the you know the NATO forces. Um, you know it's a very Cold War feel for uh, the 24th century, and so it's really exciting because they basically created the Anti Federation, and uh, it's a good series, and it involves Titan. Deep Space Nine characters, Enterprise, the Aventine with Esri, and uh, it's a good book series. Um, I really enjoyed this, and of course, it'll all be wrapping up. Um, everything will be coming ahead into the fall, in the fall series, with um, all of our favorite authors, and so that's really exciting. Yeah, that's that's a very good series as well. And uh, so the, the last one is that they have listed is the Shatnerverse series, which of course is one that really divides fans. You know, some fans love the whole Shatner series and some fans really hate it because they feel like, I think some fans feel like it was Shatner's reaction to being killed off in generations. He's like, hell no, I won't go. And then he turns Shatner and then he turns Captain Kirk into kind of a superhero instead of a Starfleet captain. 
But I believe you really enjoyed this series, don't you, Matthew? You know, I do, and you're right. Um, William Shatner did approach them after Generations with the idea that he floats in the return to have Captain Kirk return, and they said no, and so he turned it into a book series. Um, you know, I it's a lot of fun. The, the best part about the Shatner verse is that I don't have to know anything about what happened before uh, or really after because – this series sets itself in basically kind of like a JJ way. It's its own universe. And uh, everything that came before is great. You know, if I, as long as I've seen all the way up to generations and then I can jump into this series and their rip roaring adventures. Um, you know, uh, Judith and Garfield Reese Stevens co-wrote these novels with um, William Shatner. So they definitely know their track and uh, it makes for a fun romp. And yeah, I love the fact that Spock goes to Viridian 3 to pay his respects to his old friend. And what does he find? An empty grave. So, apparently Jim Kirk is the new Jesus. <laughs> Except, uh, you know, I was... not really raised by his own power. More like Borg that have been um, aligned with Romulans and nanoprobes. So. I was picturing it as... When they go to the Genesis planet, and they open the torpedo casing and they find that it's empty and there's just Spock's burial robe in there. In this case, Spock goes and he finds Kirk's grave and it's empty. Exactly. And, um, uh, this time there aren't <laughs> any of those weird like microbes crawling out of it though that Krug wants oh, to yeah. just crush. Yeah, there's none of that, luckily. So. <laughs> yeah, good old Krug. Because when you walk up and there are these like gigantic leech type creatures crawling everywhere. The first thing you want to do is pick one up, right? And just hold it and stare at it so it can wrap around you. And, and then crush it so that whatever is inside of it, you know, it's blood or whatever is squirting <laughs> out onto my hand, you know, especially since I have no idea where that thing's been. I don't know what diseases it has. Yeah, that's exactly what I want yeah. to do. <laughs> totally an unnecessary scene. <laughs> oh, goodness. All right. Well, this is a great list. So if you're looking for a new series to read, if you've, um, you know, if you're like most of us, even if you try to read the books, there are so many of them, there's a good chance that you haven't read some of these series. Hopefully this will uh, encourage you to go check out some new characters and new missions that you have yet to come across. Well, Chris, uh, in Comic News, came across some really fun things the other day. Uh, they are doing some very expensive uh, and very cool offerings for fans of the ongoing series. Uh, it's going to be where no man has gone before. Uh, Chris, what does IDW have planned for this limited series? Well, this one is called the Red Label, Blue Label, Black Label wait, series. Wait, wait, wait. I guess you could is say. Is this just Johnny Walker Scotch? It is. It comes with a bottle of Johnny Walker Scotch. Excellent. No, <laughs> this is the, it's, you know, last week we talked about the hundred penny press. This is the exact opposite. This is like the hundred dollar press. This is going to take you to the <laughs> exact opposite of, of those in terms of what they're going to cost you. But these are actually hardcover portfolio lithograph editions of the comics, and they're very limited. They're only going to be doing... 175 hand-numbered copies of the Red Label, which is where No Man Has Gone Before, 
there's going to be the uh, blue label version of Where No Man Has Gone Before, which is only going to have 15 hand-numbered copies. And then there's going to be the black label with just 50 hand-numbered copies. Now, on the low end of this, the red label is going to run you $125. Only? Wow, that's excellent. (laughs) Well, yeah, it is. And in the middle is the black label at $300. And then the blue label, only 15 hand-numbered copies, $450. Now, that's, that's kind of a steal, don't you think, Matthew? Yeah, I mean, it is. Uh, you are getting a mounted signature page with Mike Johnson, Joe Phillips, uh, Tim Bradstreet. Um, you know, you're getting uh, eight exclusive lithographs in a hardcover portfolio here, um, hand-drawn original artwork. And uh, so, yeah, for $450, this is for the ultimate fan of the ongoing series, especially since there's only 15 of these. So... Uh, you're going to want to sign up quick because these are going fast. Yeah, yeah. So I am definitely not the target audience for this release by IDW. Um, But if you are a comic collector or a Star Trek memorabilia collector, then these are very interesting, especially, as you said, the blue label. Only 15 of them produced $450. You have to expect that those are going to go up in value quite a lot over the years. So these, again, aren't really for you to read the comics so much, but they are uh, great collectibles if you're into that. And um, yeah, it's 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 nice. So we will uh, put a link to those in the show notes if you want to go check those out. For those of you who prefer just your standard comic shop paper copy of Ongoing or digital, and you want to find out what is coming up, after the movie. So after you've gone into darkness, you're going to go after darkness with ongoing number 21. It's out right now. I haven't personally read it because I can't see the movie. As everyone knows, it opens in Japan, August 23rd. However, Matthew, you have read ongoing 21. I know you said on Twitter, I believe that it is mind-blowingly good. So without giving anything away, tell everyone why you love this comic. What I really love about this, Chris, is that, uh, you know, Countdown to um, the original Countdown um, really set up the 2009 film. Um, the whole comic was was made to do that. And I think when we got Countdown to Darkness, we really expected that same thing to happen. But they're not really setting up the film so much in Countdown to Darkness. They're setting up pieces of it, but really... Countdown to Darkness is setting up the rest of what's going to happen in the rest of Ongoing. And the movie is just a piece of that, as well as the comics. And so a lot of the things that we saw in Countdown to Darkness don't necessarily get resolved in the film, but they're starting to get built upon in this After Darkness series, which is fantastic. So if you were wondering about some of those things that you didn't see an answer to in the film, read Ongoing 21. I don't think that you'll be disappointed. Um, realize that Countdown to Darkness is really just setting up the rest of where they're going to go in the comic series. And what blows my mind, Chris, is really just how they're mythologizing this new JJ universe. They are creating a rich and vibrant universe that is so much fun to be a part of because especially in these comics, it's, 
I just don't know what's going to happen. And so every time I flip over the page, I'm waiting for the next thing. So I really do like this comic series. Um, and this is really helping me see the validity of having kind of this multiverse. You know, you've got the movie, you've got the video game, you've got the comics, and they're all working together to help tell uh, a great story. Um, so good synergy on the part of um, what uh, CBS, Paramount, and the, all the licensing is doing to work together here. Yeah, it's a different approach. I think as Star Trek fans, we're accustomed to everything on television and the 10 films involving TOS and TNG crews being canon and everything else being non-canon supplemental material for those who just want to read more about the characters. But in the Abrams verse, it's almost as if the films are supplemental and the actual Abrams verse itself is living mainly in the comics right now. And then the films kind of give you a little bit more of that on the screen. But it's not it's it's a very different approach to 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 building the mythology, as you said, compared to what we've been accustomed to over the past forty seven years. Well and what's so great is, you know, you don't have to read the comics to see the films. It's fine. Uh, the comics just add a lot of great backstory to both of the films now, and, and it makes it a lot of fun for the fans, you know, especially since we all had to wait four years for this film to come out. Chris, you're still waiting for Star Trek into August, and uh, so this yeah. really gave us something to do and really to enjoy, and you're right, this is something new for us. These comics actually mean something, um, and so that's pretty exciting that, uh, you know, they are... are you know, I don't know how the canon word works here, but they're pretty much considered canon um, in this JJ universe. And uh, the film can still contradict if it wants to, but they definitely try not to. And I think that's great. Yeah, I think it's less less likely that it would contradict, considering that the same people are writing both, for sure. All right. Well, Matthew, before we jump into the feature today, let's take a moment and tell everyone about our sponsor, Squarespace. Now, Squarespace is the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create a professional website, a blog, a portfolio. And with the commerce feature that they added recently, you can even do an online store and have it set up in just a few minutes. Now, I've been using Squarespace for five or six years. I absolutely love the platform. I use it for my personal work. I use it for Trek Film. I use it for client projects. And one thing I love about it as a designer is that Squarespace really cares about design. And they have these uh, templates that you can use as a starting point for your website or your blog. And then they make it very easy for you to modify that using a 100% drag and drop system and what they call layout engine. Matthew, can you tell us a little bit about what Layout Engine is? Sure can, Chris. It's really cool. Layout Engine uh, technology gives you the freedom to create a visually rich page that uh, configures the text, the images, the, the products, and, and you know those content blocks. You simply drag your content exactly where you want it, and then they'll automatically align them in a perfect grid. And if you're like me and you're not somebody who's really web savvy, this is perfect. Um, it, you know, like you said, the layouts are beautiful and just being able to put things where I want them and kind of rearrange them by dragging and dropping is fantastic. And um, one of the things that Squarespace does is it's exceptionally well designed. 
Um, you know, each template has hundreds of little customizing options for it. Uh, you've got over 300 fonts. If you're like me, I'm a font freak. If I'm making something, <laughs> I, I really do. I, I will spend like 45 minutes just picking out the right font because it, it right. really sets the tone. Yeah. And so, um, and does. then what's great about this, Chris, is it's got responsive design. Uh, Squarespace website has its own unique mobile design so that your site automatically scales. So if somebody's looking at it, their iPhone, it's going to look one way. If it, you look at it on your iPad, it's going to look another. And if you look at it on the desktop, you're going to have that full site. But this way, people don't miss the content. It's created specifically for the device they're looking on, which is really important in today's mobile world. It really is. And it's very useful as well. And like for me, a big time saver, I'm working on a project right now for a client and I'm prototyping the site in Squarespace. And because of the responsive design, I've been able to very quickly build the framework for the site and take screenshots from my desktop, from my iPad and from my iPhone and show those to my client so they can actually see how the site is going to look on all these different devices. And I didn't have to build you know, different sites for each one of these. All I had to do was do it once and then using the display from responsive design, show them what it looks like. And it's been a huge time saver for me. Now, another thing I wanted to mention this week, because we don't really talk about this feature very often, is the developer platform. Because, you know, some of you may be listening and you may be thinking that, you know, this drag and drop, it's all great for the average person, but I'm a web developer and I like to have absolute 100% control. I like to write my code by hand. I like to write my own custom CSS. I want to be able to, you know, have FTP access where I can upload and, and download files back and forth uh, as I please uh, with a traditional, you know, file folder structure. Well, you can do that with Squarespace as well. In addition to the uh, drag-and-drop system that we talk about most of the time, Squarespace actually does have a developer's platform that gives you complete control over the display of your website. It gives you complete control over every line of HTML, CSS, and JavaScript. It has Git and SFTP, Secure FTP. It also has version control. That comes standard. It has developer tools like less pre-processing, JSON templating, you know, script comboing. It gives you retina-ready responsive image handling, which is really important these days as more and more displays become retina quality. And, uh, and a great thing about the Squarespace developer platform is that developer accounts are free. They never expire while in development. And you can take as much time as you want developing the website before you launch it, and you don't pay anything until you're ready to launch the website. And then once you're ready, the pricing starts at $16 per month when you go live. It's very, very affordable. It's a great way for you to take advantage of all the power of Squarespace that we normally talk about while you maintain complete control as the developer and you're not having to put out money during that development process either. So it's a fantastic option for you if you are a developer and and you think Squarespace sounds great but maybe you you are concerned that it might limit you. Trust me, Squarespace will not limit you. You can do absolutely anything you want to with this platform. So Matthew, let's tell everyone how they can try Squarespace for free. You can get a free account, 14-day trial, no credit card required. All they ask you for is your name and an email address, and they use that to set up the site. You can use 
all the features of Squarespace for 14 days. Or of course, you can set up a developer account as well if you'd like to have that complete control. And then when you get ready to sign up after 14 days, pricing starts at $8 per month standard, $16 for the unlimited package. And if you want to build an online store, you'll want to get the business package for just $24 per month. And as a Trek FM listener, you can save 10% off by using offer code TREK6. So just go to squarespace.com and use offer code TREK6. And when you do this, you'll be getting the web's best CMS, you'll be getting the best hosting, and you'll be getting the best customer service because Squarespace, they are there for you 24-7, and they really are. I've had to talk to them a number of times just with different questions I've had. You know, I want to have some help with this or that. They usually respond to me in a matter of minutes, and they stay with me all the way through until my problem is resolved or my questions have been answered. And uh, you can get it all by just going to squarespace.com slash trek. Use offer code TREK6 to save 10%, and you'll be supporting our sponsor and helping us bring this programming to you every week. Well, today we're going to do something um, a little bit different. Uh, Chris and I have been doing our Deep Space Nine retrospective series going back and looking at the eighth season of Deep Space Nine in the novels. And we thought it might be fun to do something completely different uh, this week and just choose a standalone book that we had both read before and really liked. And so we talked and batted around some ideas and came up with the idea of talking about Shadows on the Sun, which is a great Star Trek book that takes place after, in fact, right after The Undiscovered Country and is a very McCoy-centered book. And I picked this one specifically. I really enjoy the character of McCoy. Uh, He doesn't get as much screen time as I think he should in a lot of ways. And so I wanted to be able to talk about this book. And uh, Chris, uh, reading through this book and and doing some research on this, I was seeing that um, after The Undiscovered Country, there are actually quite a few books that we get with the crew of the Enterprise A. It's like we just can't let go of this crew once that film happens. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, I I don't think the fans were ready to let go of that crew. You know, the studio wanted to make that transition to the next generation. And, you know, it felt like, okay, we've done six films. It's time to put the original series crew to rest It's time to, you know, pass the baton. And then we get generations where they actually do pass the baton. But I think as fans, especially as TOS fans, we really weren't ready to say goodbye. And I I think Kirk wasn't ready to say goodbye. And, you know, in this book, I love at the beginning of this book, after Kirk has received his uh, message from Commander Montoya, and he goes in to see Bones and, you know, Bones is in his quarters and Kirk's so excited, you know, and Bones is like, what is it? Kirk says, listen to this. We've got ourselves a mission. And then he's still smiling. He's like, a mission, Bones. We're not through yet. They want us to help out one last time. You can tell that Kirk himself just does not want to give up the Enterprise. He doesn't want to retire. And I thought one of the fun things that was so interesting in this book is that they really are setting up all these characters to move forward. Um, you know, there's the mention that uh, Kirk and 
Carol Marcus have restarted their romance. Um, and, and so Kirk is actually looking forward very much to getting back to Earth and spending a lot of time with her. Um, Bones himself has, has resolved himself uh, that he will um, be done. He's he's kind of ready to be done. He's tired. It, it's his time. Um, everybody in the book at the beginning they don't want to leave Starfleet. They're, I mean, it, it reminded me a little bit of, <clears throat> you know, when a prisoner gets out of uh, prison and they're really not sure what to do with themselves because they've been in there for so long. Uh, you know, they've been in Starfleet for so long, living on the Enterprise. Are you suggesting that Starfleet is a prison or the Enterprise is a prison? No, no. Uh, just, <laughs> just, the, <laughs> just the idea of, of being in one life so long. It's very hard to right. understand, it, you know, what it's going to be like to live a, a civilian life. Yeah, right. And uh, yeah. Uh, these characters, I think it's great. They all do respond very well to being given this new mission. Um I, I thought it was interesting because, you know, Kirk is really excited about getting the new mission, and even Bones then be- gets excited about this. And and we find out one of the main reasons is is Bones really doesn't feel like he has much on Earth to go back home to. I mean, he has his daughter Joanna. Right. He's very excited to be seeing them, but he's not going to be going home to anyone. You know, Kirk is excited about going home to Carol. And, and really furthering that relationship. But Bones doesn't have that. Um, so that's one of the main cruxes of this book is just kind of watching um, these characters go through this last mission and how that's going to affect the rest of their lives. And uh, unfortunately, by the time we get to the end, Bones' life is never going to be the same again. Right, yeah. And what's really interesting here, Chris, too, is, is you know, we we're talking about Shadows on the Sun here, but there are four different distinct books um, that, uh, you know, just happened when we were talking about this uh, in, after Undiscovered Country. Uh, there's Shadows on the Sun here. There's The Last Roundup. Uh, we talked about Ashes of Eden in the Shatnerverse, you know, before uh, in that big list that we just talked about. And then The Fearful Summons. So there's four great books here, you know, for those fans who, you know, if you just couldn't get enough of this crew after uh, Undiscovered Country, there's a lot that happens before Generations does. So um, be sure to check those out because I think you'll really like them. So diving into this book, Chris, um, you know, we both read it before. I was just going to ask you, just in general, what did you think of reading it again? Well, it was interesting, you know, you and I both really like the character development. And when we talk about the TV shows, we tend to focus on the character development a lot more than other elements of the story. And so, you know, this is a book where we're completely delving into Dr. McCoy's character and finding out a bit more about his past, you know, kind of what led him to Starfleet. And, you know, McCoy's I don't know, he's kind of, you can always tell there's something bothering him from the past. He's kind of grumpy, he's kind of angry sometimes, he's kind of curmudgeon And this book fills in some specific events that, that explain what's eating away at him that is never really explained on screen. So um, it was nice to have a refresher and to kind of remember what what those things were. 
Yeah, it is one of those things that this is the book that really dives into and answers the question of, you know, why did McCoy leave Earth and, and join Starfleet? And, and um, you know, one of the main things that we had seen with McCoy is that he had left Earth, we knew, because of a relationship that had gone south. Um, but we never know exactly how or, or why that happens um, in, in the story of, of Star Trek. We're never told that. And e- even in, in Star Trek V, when um, McCoy's pain is taken away, this isn't the pain that we, we hear about. You know, it, it's his father. Right. And so uh, this is something that's always been kind of left a mystery. And um, Michael Jan Freeman really blows the lid off this story finally and, and gives us this thing that McCoy has been carrying around for you know his 27 years that in Starfleet um actually 27 years a little bit longer than that because that's how long Kirk has known him um but uh you know he's been in Starfleet even longer than that so yeah i think uh there's a conversation between Kirk and Bones in here and if i remember Bones actually says it's been 30 years since the divorce with Jocelyn and then Kirk says you know well, it's been 30 years and you never told me about it. Or or Bones says, I never told you about it. Kirk says, well, I know you don't tell me everything that goes on in your life. But but you, you would feel that, they, that they're so close that it's the kind of thing that at some point Bones would have shared with Kirk, but he didn't. And the fact that he never felt that he could talk to Kirk about this shows... I think how much it impacted him, how much it's affected him to the point where he's wanted to lock it away and just not face up to it. And in the first part of this book, even after Jocelyn comes onto the ship, he still tries to hide away and lock that away and, and not face up to what happened. And and it's so you know difficult for him. I, one of the things that I thought was really interesting in this book is is the third section. Jocelyn is telling Kirk the whole story of of um, you know what had happened that had caused McCoy to leave. And in that story, um, you see that there's this whole side of McCoy that he has never shown to anyone. Um, in fact. The only person who knows this story that he's told this story to is an assassin on the world of San, which I think is very interesting that the only person who who knew this really deep-seated pain of McCoy's that he just kind of – it's always bubbling under the surface for him is somebody that – um, is going to change his life forever. And I, I just think that's a very interesting character trait about McCoy's. He doesn't even trust Kirk, you know, his best friend, or, or Spock with, with this information. And, and that it spoke to me a little bit in the, in the way that we as humans will have something terrible happen to us and we allow it to really affect us in a really bad way. And the fact that we allow it to keep us separate from others, and uh, it reminded me of what uh, Cassidy says to Cisco in "Bada Bing, Bada Bang," where she says, "You know, it's it's only we ourselves who can hold us back uh, this day and age." And the same really goes for McCoy here. Um, I think, in some ways, his life he holds himself back because he can't let go of this anger that he has, um, and. You know, obviously, he's still in love with Jocelyn as well, and he can never really let all that go. And it has a huge impact on what the rest of his life looks like. 
It does, and that's a long time to hold on to something like that. I, I think it raises the question of why do you hold on to something? Uh, we talk about them not wanting to give up the enterprise, and you know, Kirk says, I don't think any of us has quite come to accept the decision to decommission the enterprise. And it, it kind of parallels what's going on with Bones here, too. It's like he he can't accept what happened with Jocelyn, and he can never let go of it. And here they're, they're kind of trying to hang on for this one last mission, but they're trying to hang on to the Enterprise because, like you said at the beginning, they're not sure what they would do with themselves afterwards. And it's almost like Bones could never let go of her and was never sure what to do with himself afterwards. So he flung himself out into space. He went out into Starfleet. And the one thing that he holds true to, I think, is his oath as a physician. And that plays out a lot in this book as well. But he's never let go of uh, of losing her and the fact that she ended up with one of his friends from high school. And that's just been, yeah, like you said, holding him back or eating away at him through all these decades. Not years, but decades. Yeah. The it, whole time we've known him, you know, as viewers watching him, that he's been carrying this. It is very interesting because you're, I think you're right on, Chris, that, that correlation, you know, he even talks about, um, he's thinking to himself when he's packing up his uh, office in, in sickbay, um, why he wouldn't just go join another vessel. You know, McCoy is still a fantastic docker. He has a lot to offer, um, but he just can't contemplate, he says, starting over again. And so it, just like in his relationship life, he could never really start over with a woman because he couldn't let go of Jocelyn and that anger, but also the love he has for her. He also can't contemplate starting over in his work life. It's just, it's daunting a task for him. He can't let go. Well, and he also can't contemplate starting over with Jocelyn when that opportunity arises as well. He says, I'm a grandfather. You know, I shouldn't be putting myself out there like this. I should be playing it safe. And yet, you know, by the, what I thought was so interesting is that he really can't deny that part of him. Like once those floodgates open, um, I thought that was a beautiful scene. You know, um, he's, he's in his quarters and he gets a knock on the door, uh, of his quarters and she comes in and it, the way it's described, she's wearing a beautiful flowing, you know, nightgown. Right. And you just imagine her looking beautiful. And I'm picturing, you know, the, the bones from the undiscovered country. And, you know, he's, he's an older guy, but, you know, DeForest Kelly still looked and, and had that vivaciousness about him. And, um, just that whole scene, I was thinking, oh, old people love, awesome. <laughs> but uh, it really is a beautiful scene. And then, you know, she kisses him and everything in him, it's like all these walls, they come undone. And I loved though, and this is what I loved about Bones, is he always does the right thing. And he stops her and he says, no, I, we can't do this. I can't have, you know, an affair with you like this. You're still married, um, you know. Basically, if you want me, you're going to have to do this the right way. You're not going to have. You're not going to be able to still be married. You're going to have to. You're going to have to be with me, and you have to make a choice. And I, I really appreciated that about um, his character because that's another thing in this book. And I wanted to talk about Chris because this is a huge part of this book: um, the idea of whether right and wrong are 
something that are just cultural and that we we accept our morality based on just our cultural um, understanding of it or if it's universal. Um, and, and really where this comes into play in, is in the second part of this book, but really in all of McCoy's life. Um, they go to San, which is this uh, planet where assassination is a way of life. Not only is assassination a way of life, but it is a religious um, necessity for them. Uh, it's one of their ways of population control. And uh, the way it's described is very interesting, and it, and it involves the title of the book. The assassin um, that McCoy saves tells him that they are all shadows on the sun, and that by eliminating somebody, they are allowing the light to shine a little bit further, which, wow, I'm just going to say, um, if that's what my higher power wants me to do, I don't really want to serve that higher power personally, but this is this is where they come from and and McCoy his argument is is that no this is murder this is wrong and it it's irregardless of your culture so this is a huge question for me um and for this book and it's in line with the very best of Star Trek what did you think about that whole discussion Chris well yeah it was interesting they kind of mix up two things here. There's, well, I don't know. It's not exactly mixing it up. What I found interesting is it parallels a lot of what's happening in the world today, even though this book was written in 1993. So this book is 20 years old. But a, a lot of the the justification for killing others in this book is intertwined with religious beliefs and it's also intertwined with terrorism and you know they refer uh in this second part here a lot about these uh, assassins as being terrorists um you mentioned that originally it was designed for population control because there were no birth control methods and it was almost like a survival of the fittest kind of thing but over time as uh, birth control was made widely available. It almost became a ceremonial thing. But then I feel what I take from the book is that it went beyond being a ceremonial thing and it became a justification for murder just for the sake of killing people. That, like, they talk about how the act itself justifies the act. And it's what I feel is happening a lot in the world today with Islamic extremists where I feel like, you know, they're taking a religion and a small group are using that as a justification for other actions that really don't have that much to do with the religion. That, that's what I feel is happening a bit here on Sun. Although this was written at a time when the nature of terrorism was very different than it is today. It, of course, existed in the 90s, existed in the 80s and the 70s and going back, but it has had a little bit of a different, maybe a more targeted feel than I felt like there was more of a, a goal behind actions at that point in history than there are today, where it feels almost like it's just for the sake of destruction. What made this really interesting to me were the arguments that happen here. And, and um, McCoy is a very classically 
uh, trained and uh, uh, very uh, Western. I, I would say McCoy is a is a Western person. Um, he he stands for Western values. Uh, and, I thought and, he was a Southern person and and ethics. Um, <laughs> well, I, I just mean like yes. the Western world and, and and not the Eastern philosophy, but the you know the Western right. philosophy. Um, and yes, M- McCoy, honestly, of every character in Star Trek, I think would be the person that really um, imbibes the kind of Judeo-Christian values that we kind of hold dear in whether you're necessarily – and I say that, you know, that there's that value system that we, most of us kind of hold dear, even if we're not well, beholden to that right. religion. Um, McCoy yeah, that really value re- system is kind of the fabric of the exactly. society, whether you're actually religious or not, just the the foundation of the society. Right. And and so McCoy really is the embodiment of that. And his friend Merlin is really kind of the embodiment of a more um, liberalized and... Well, he's more of a liberal view in the American sense of liberalism. Yes, he he's he's more of a, a a liberal type view, but he also has the relativistic view as well, and and that's what I mean to say. Um, he represents the idea that what we believe as right and wrong is is only based because that's what our culture deems it to be, and that's why Starfleet itself doesn't go out and impose its values on on others because it's culturally relevant. And McCoy really argues that this isn't the case, that right and wrong and morality are black and white. And basically, there's an overarching universal morality and truth that no matter where you're from, that these things are right. And one of them is, is that murder is wrong, always. And what's so interesting is that McCoy wants to argue this, but he's, he's taken out the legs from the argument because... You can only go so far, um, but unless you can say that your morality is based on something above yourself, then you're really just going to get into, this is just a cultural argument. You need to be able to say that your morality is based on something larger than yourself for it to really have legs. Otherwise, it really is just a cultural mandate. And uh, I just thought that was interesting is McCoy wants to have it in both ways, but he's taken away what really makes his argument stick. Um, And uh, I just think that's a really interesting thing. Yeah, I I feel with McCoy here that the thing that is bigger than himself, that, that he that causes him to feel this way. And maybe it's why for him, the argument doesn't really hold you know, he gets kind of caught, like you said, where he gets the legs knocked out from under it, is that his isn't based on any sort of religious belief or higher power. It's based on medicine, based on saving lives. You know, he's a physician, his oath is as a doctor. And whereas some people may say that, you know, murder is wrong 100% of the time, because of uh, religious belief, I think in his case he he feels that way because he has sworn to save lives, and you know you see that whole argument in here where 
he spends a lot of time conversing with an assassin who they've recovered after mm-hmm. they have, you know, killed the the government, a lot of government officials. They don't realize they're rescuing an assassin at first, but when they when they find out who he is, McCoy, you know, refuses to let this assassin die, even though the assassin tells him you have to kill me, and McCoy doesn't. And I think that's where you see that no matter how much McCoy thinks that what this assassin did is wrong, no matter how much he hates this person and everything this person represents, he won't kill this person and he will not let this person die because that would violate his belief that all life is valued mm-hmm. no matter what. Right. And that's his oath as a doctor. Well, and, and McCoy really holds to this idea um, and again, this is, uh, you can't deny it. It's, it's a very Judeo-Christian idea that all life is sacred. Um, and, uh, it, and that's also held in a lot of Eastern beliefs as well. So, I mean, this, um, this has permeated human society for a really long time. And yet the reason that almost all societies in, in, in our world say that is, is based on some belief in some sort of god or creation or you know we 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 base that on something beyond ourselves to justify saying that and again at least in buddhism a connection that we have with nature exactly everything is interconnected you know in 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 japan you know the belief is that there's like a little god in everything right it's not a god like like allah um you know islamic or judeo-christian god but it's it's uh like some Thing in the universe that's in, right. in every rock or in every tree or so there's some connection there yes which is uh it, again it's just so interesting when they're having this this conversation is that you know the, the kind of um stopper in the in this kind of discussion is to be able to say this is right because god says so or because there's a little piece of of like god in in, in all things you know um but he can't go there and so there's this limitation in in thinking only on a like a scientific plane or or those kind of things and so i just I, it's a great interesting question and obviously we're not going to answer that here but it's such a huge part of this book and i really appreciate michael jane freeman bringing this up and it plays out perfectly because again i, I think mccoy has always been kind of the ethical heart of TOS you know he was he was the guy who um, always had a firm belief in right and wrong you know uh, Kirk did in some ways but he was a little bit more lenient Spock is completely on on the scientific side but but bones always seem to be just kind of the soul I think of TOS and it really plays out in this book very well so I applaud Michael Jan Freeman and his work here Right. Well, and this is the core of the whole prime directive argument, right? I mean, if if Starfleet is um, a scientific exploratory organization, they're going to encounter other worlds. And, you know, time and time and time again in Star Trek, this question has been asked, you know, do we interfere with the society? Do we not interfere? Um, I think Enterprise did a good job of this in Broken Bow, actually, where... They go down, I believe it's when they're on Rigel 10, but there's that mother who is 
teaching her child how to breathe and she's weaning the child. And, you know, Tripp is just infuriated because Tripp thinks this mother is suffocating the child. And and he actually confronts her and then T'Pol pulls him away and says, you know, you have to let go of these preconceived notions of right and wrong. You know, it depends on the culture and society. Not everyone does things the same way. Not everyone does the way, not everyone does things the way humans do. And that is, I think, every member of Starfleet, as they leave their home worlds, and they, it's just like, you know, we, as we we grow up in our family, we're raised by our parents, we tend to believe whatever our parents believed initially, then we start to learn more about the world on our own, we start to develop our own ideas, and we kind of figure out for ourselves what's right, and what's wrong, and what our positions are on things. Same way for Starfleet officers as they leave their home worlds, they go to Earth, they go to the Academy, they get out on ships, they start exploring, and they have to kind of uh, adapt as they get more and more information. Now, my question here is, do you, does Bones ever do that, though? Because the Bones we see in this book is really holding steadfast to what's going on on Sen is wrong, period. I don't care what their cultural traditions are. I don't care how it plays into their religious beliefs. It's just wrong, and that's it. And it's our place to say it's wrong, and they have no say, even though it's their own homeworld. Yeah, I think uh, where Bones even ends up in the end uh, is that uh, he he's having that conversation with his, his uh, trainees uh, in the middle of the book, and he says... Uh, to one of them, you're confusing morality with law, Warren. The law says we can't interfere with another culture, but that doesn't mean that we have to condone everything that happens in that culture or say that it's right. Um, and I, I really think that sums up where McCoy uh, is, even by the end of the book. He, he The law of the Federation might be non-interference, um, but that doesn't mean that he has to condone something as being right. Uh, and so if somebody right. asks him, he's going to give a firm answer. But isn't that a lot of the difference between TOS and TNG as well? Now, of course, this is a TOS book. In TOS, we frequently see the Enterprise visit a planet and they interfere with things <laughs> that they feel are wrong. That's all Kirk does. Um, I'm sorry, yeah, that's that's a, just a computer. Um, I'm going to take that away from you, and <laughs> you guys are going to have to kill each other now. See ya. Right. I mean, we, we talked about a piece of the action on the Ready Room last week, and, you know, that's a case where Kirk, you know, interferes with how things are going because he feels like he's going to improve the situation. And I always think of A Taste of Armageddon where these two planets have you know it's it's terrible what's going on but if you think of the alternative they're killing a small number of people in a very orderly manner willingly on each side versus the just complete destruction of two worlds that would take place otherwise now we think it's terrible that even what they're doing is terrible but you know it's worked for them for hundreds of years and who are we to come in and take away their computers uh, but time and again in TOS, we see this kind of interference, whereas in TNG, we get much more of the non-interference prime directive where 
Picard and his crew would be more likely to say, well, it sucks. It really sucks what's going on here, but you know, it's not our world. Let's go our own way. And yeah, it's a different philosophy. Well, and Picard would rather stab himself in the eye than break the prime directive. I mean, uh, and well, Kirk he's on the done other it hand, on occasion, is, yeah. but he would prefer not to, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And But I, I really think that this is the difference between, you know, as progressive as Roddenberry in the, in the 60s were, you, you still have a very Judeo-Christian idea that is permeating even star trek uh and and what the morality is and and yeah i gotta go tell these people on the planet and the apple that what they're worshiping is wrong um because it's not right they're worshiping a false god you know if you're gonna worship something it needs to be able to hold your worship um so kirk destroys their object of worship and and then, you know, also gives them sex at the same time. So it's like he's the devil in uh, Paradise Lost. <laughs> um, and uh, so, yeah, Kirk is not afraid to impose his morality because it's right. Whereas, the, the you know, the next generation is obviously the picture of the 80s and that kind of like oversaturation of the word tolerance as if tolerance means that all ideas are valid, you know. Um, and I really think that this is where mccoy is getting at here is that yes we we don't interfere with their culture but that doesn't mean i have to condone what they're doing is right um there there's a transcendent right and wrong and i think this is where uh, deep space nine really starts to excel is that it it has a much more nuanced view of of this and i think handles this much better because cisco's not afraid to say something's wrong but he's also not always going to do the Kirk thing where he just steps in and tells you what to do at the same time. Um, in fact, Cisco is much more likely to try and help you see what you're doing is wrong, you know, from your side. Um, in the same way, a counselor, when you're, you're in a counselor's office, they want you to get to admit that you're wrong so that you'll change. That's kind of more yeah. where I think, um, you know, Star Trek kind of moves. And then, of course, you get to Janeway and let's just not even yeah. talk about that. Well, if Cisco is the counselor, I'm just glad that they did not put Avery Brooks in those little jumpsuits oh, that they put Raina Sertes in. <laughs> oh, God, that would have been horrible. So, um, you know, we've been talking about this idea, Chris, of this, the right and wrong morality. And we really get to this question then, too, that, that McCoy faces, especially in the middle of this book about what makes a good doctor um, because as we talked about he saves this assassin and he finds that he may be able to pump basically this guy for information um, to be able to figure out where they're going to be um, going next and his um, chief medical officer gives him the okay to do this and all of his friends tell him, this is a horrible idea. This is going against everything that this means to be a doctor. You're breaking patient, you know, um, doctor confidentiality. You're breaking the trust of what it means to be a doctor, that to do no harm, you're there to save the patient, and that is it. Um, that was a really interesting conversation to me, too, because it is another big ethical dilemma, which really leads to do the ends justify the means, um, and really struggling with this question. Um, what did you think about that, Chris? Well, there's a twist in here, though. Like, 
what they say about what it means to be a doctor and you're just here to save the patient and that's it. That might be great, you know, if you work at the hospital in San Francisco and you're treating humans who come in with injuries all the time. But McCoy here, he's a doctor. He's also a Starfleet officer. He's also participating in a diplomatic mission that Starfleet has sent him on. So he's not just a doctor in this situation. And as far as like getting information out of the assassin, I have to say that um, McCoy is possibly the worst person you could choose to (laughs) get information out of someone because he's definitely has no interrogation skills in this book. Yes. Uh, you really want Julian Bashir on that. He's really being manipulated by the assassin. And I'm not sure that he realizes all the time that he's being manipulated. Yeah, I, I think that that's the thing is is just... Um, and that's what McCoy realizes. He even says it um, after Eventually, this yeah. goes wrong, is that, damn right. it, I'm a doctor, not a spy. And I needed to... To yeah. remember that in the first place, and 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 um, I think the the main issue is is not so much too that he loses that trust of the patient and the doctor confidentiality there. I think a lot of this goes on the fact that this is not even what Bones is trained for, and um, exactly he is betraying his ethics, but he's also signing up for a job that he's not ready for. He has no training for. So I, I just think that that's really interesting. Um, and the question about the ends justifying the means, though, I, if Bones had let this guy die, his friend Merlin would not have died. His wife Jocelyn, his ex-wife Jocelyn, would not have died. And there is a good chance that they might not have even had to have gone back to this planet if he had allowed this person to die. Because we find out that this is now the high assassin who is leading the charge to have assassination come back because the planet has dealt with assassination. Um, they've they've um, put that on ice. You're, you're not allowed to do that anymore. It's, it's uh, against the law. And this guy that McCoy saves in the past has come back to become this high assassin. And this question of the as the ends justify the means really comes forward it, it's almost that same question you get in a uh, superhero movie does the superhero should they just you know should the batman just finally kill the joker so that every time he gets out he doesn't end up killing hundreds and hundreds of more people um wouldn't that be better right but he can't i mean it's like it's like in the the old weird al yankovic song about star wars yoda where he says, I know Darth Vader's really got you annoyed, but remember, if you kill him, then you'll be unemployed. So, you can't. I mean, Batman can't kill the Joker. That's true. That's so true. Um, <laughs> but it, it really, it is an ethical conundrum. And what's funny is that, honestly, it goes perfectly with what Spock says all the time. Is the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few or the one? And at this point, doesn't that statement ring true that if McCoy had just let this person die the way that he asked him to, that 
most likely the needs of the many would have been served. And it's a utilitarian argument. Um, but it, what's, again, interesting is that the utilitarian argument here is is much stronger than, I think, McCoy's argument, which, again, is, is based on, more on a more spiritual idea of that life is sacred um, and that all life should be preserved um, and that this guy should then face some kind of judgment. And, and that's, that's where, you know, say like the American side or the Western side, we would say we would save this person so they can face a, a jury of their peers. But on their, you know, this planet they're on, that's not how this works at all. So again, there all these great ethical questions in this book that really have you thinking as you're reading. And, and right. that's fantastic. It's really what Star Trek does best. Yeah, I think ultimately the problem for McCoy here, though, is the medical part of it. The fact that he is a doctor and he has this Hippocratic Oath, because I can see all the captains in this situation where at first they may want to save this person as well. You know, like they don't want to actually kill this assassin. But in the end, I can see, I think all the other captains with the possible exception of Picard, but I think even Picard would make this decision in the end as well, that in the end, uh, th- this assassin has already killed so many people on this planet, plans to kill more and more and more. They would ultimately uh, accept the fact that they may have to eliminate this person. But McCoy is a doctor. It's just a step that he can't take. You know, He cannot cross that line. And I think that that is, is an, a great conundrum to put on McCoy then in this book and, and really make right. that the question. And it makes uh, that choice hard to live with in the end when Jocelyn dies because, again, of, of the very hand of this assassin. Uh, it, it It's a heart-wrenching scene when that happens. And, and uh, he the, the, the book even ends with, with McCoy basically knowing he is never going to be truly happy again, the book says. Uh, and that's, that's soul-crushing. Um, but uh, a great but has he question. ever been truly happy since the the good years of his marriage with Jocelyn before they were divorced? It's it's yeah. kind of like it maintains the status quo for McCoy. Yeah, exactly. Forward, um, which is a, a sad statement, and and it leads to the the last thing I really wanted to dive into here was uh, this idea of choices. Um, you know how our choices define us, and and. Good choices can really lead to great things in our lives, and, and uh, bad choices can haunt us for the rest of our lives. And both McCoy and Jocelyn are haunted by what has happened to them, uh, by the choices they made. Especially um, McCoy being haunted by the choices that Jocelyn made. You know, McCoy goes back to school after they've had their daughter Joanna. He's in medical school. You know, this is not just medical school, but this is like. We're talking about xenobiology, and, and McCoy is really having to, to, to lay into the studying. Uh, he is not home very much, and, and she begins to feel lonely, kind of that classic uh, problem that happens so often. And, and Clay comes back into her life, the man that she ends up marrying after McCoy, um, and she has an affair with him, and, and they McCoy walks in. And the worst part about it is, 
I think, is that McCoy realizes that he's been neglecting her and he's walked home early with flowers uh, to right. kind of woo her back. And she has destroyed everything with this one selfish act, um, which I thought was really interesting, too, because at the end of the book, she talks about the way that she was raised and that her needs and her happiness were all that mattered. Isn't that what it mattered that she says is, isn't that what, what was really important was my happiness. And she realizes that by being so selfish, she's really destroyed somebody that she has loved all of her life. Um, and, uh, right. I just thought that was really interesting. It's an interesting comment, one, on, on what it takes to make a good marriage. As you know, Chris, is somebody who's been married for a very long time, um, it takes a lot of unselfish behavior to make a marriage work. And uh, then making the difficult choices, being sacrificial, being loving, being giving um, to make things work, and, and just how this choice has really haunted them for 27 years. 30 years this is really speaks to wanting to um make good choices in your life um because if you don't you can end up being this bitter and this hurt for a really long time right yeah i I think one thing that made this worse for bones is the fact that he and clay had gone to school together in high school and had fought over jocelyn at that point and then McCoy ended up with her. But then when, you know, this time of, of neglecting her in favor of his studies happened and then she ends up, um, you know, feeling lonely, it's Clay again. So it's almost there's a, another bit, element of betrayal there. It, it wasn't just some random person. It was actually Clay again, you know, coming back into the picture. And, and that made it worse for him as well. And and then I think the bigger picture here is not only making those choices and how those choices can haunt you through life, but there is the question of, of letting go, of moving on and not allowing things to haunt you through your life. You know, you, you can certainly look back, you know, and it's, it's, you can always look back at the choices that you made in life and see how this choice led you to this point, And then from there, this choice led you to this point and where you are now, because it's easy to connect those dots looking backwards. But when it's happening, of course, you have no idea where it's going. So it's, you know, it's, I don't think you're seeing things necessarily honestly as they happened when you trace backwards. It's kind of, you're, you're writing a story after you already have all the events in place. Um, but, you know, maybe when you look back at the things that happened and the decisions you made, it can allow you to make the conscious decision that you're going to let go of something and you're not going to let that control your life moving forward and you're not going to let that haunt you. And again, that it's something that I guess Bones definitely wasn't able to do that. And Maybe Jocelyn for a little while felt like she did, but maybe in the end, she actually wasn't able to let go of that either. Well, Chris, I think uh, the real message of this book is love the one you're with and uh, treat them well, you know, um, <laughs> otherwise, uh, 
soul crushing pain can happen for 30 years. Uh, and, uh, I think it, it is a good message about, and I think this is something that we see in Deep Space Nine, uh, where the prophets ask Cisco, but why do you exist here? And for McCoy, right. he exists in the pain of always just having walked in on Clay and Jocelyn mm-hmm. in bed together. And, um, it's, um, yeah, if the prophets, uh, if the prophets gave visions to Bones, the way that uh, for Cisco they took him back to the Saratoga being destroyed. For Bones, it would be that moment when he walked in on right. Jocelyn and Clay, right? Um, and uh, exactly the same thing needed to happen for Bones for him to be able to let go and move on. Um, and I think we would have seen a much happier character in the end. Um, well, wrapping up, Chris, uh, what would you uh, you know rate this book, and and would you recommend uh, this book, Shadows on the Sun, to everyone? Oh, well, that is a good question. I didn't really think about a rating before the show. So, um, you know, I think if uh, giving it an actual rating that people can understand, not a Ready Room style rating, I don't know, I'd probably give, you know, like 7 out of 10 for this book. It depends on what you like. Now, if you're a really big Bones fan, I think this could be like a 10 out of 10 book for you because it gives you so much background behind Bones stuff that was never covered on the television series, but stuff that can help explain the character that we did see. Uh, So a great book for fans of Bones. Um, If you're looking for just a general Star Trek adventure, uh, this book uh, might be a little bit too character focused for you to get to just get that. If you're thinking of it as like, here's a next great adventure for the Enterprise crew after the Undiscovered Country, you know, you might find that it's a little bit too much about Bones' personal life. But that was the goal of the book. So that's certainly not a fault of the writing in any way. Well, Chris, I think uh, if I was going to give this a rating, I would give it uh, 9 out of 10 sorry and brandies. And uh, (laughs) this is, uh, I think... A hands-down fantastic book. As we talked about, just you said, I think, at the beginning, we really enjoy character stories, you and I personally. And um, for me, being a huge McCoy fan, it was wonderful to finally get this background of who he was, what had happened to him. Um, You know, we saw this a little bit in the ongoing comic where him and his wife had just grown apart. There hadn't been an affair there, Mm -hmm. but they just, he got divorced. She left him um because she couldn't take it and so i'm i'm glad to see um that there is a little bit more to the story here at least in the prime universe and uh, michael jan freeman does a fantastic job of giving us a lot to talk about uh ethically morally um just as all great star trek does and there's also some great moments for smaller characters uh that's in this film ohura shines in this this book this this few scenes that she's in she comes off as being so competent and and well written um and even some thoughts that kirk has in his head and spock has in his head about her so complimentary so really great to see that um scotty uh, is always a joy uh, and then uh, Chekhov has some funny things in this book as well but they all come off as being these great wise characters who have been in Starfleet. The the writing here is fantastic. Right. Well, they're the post-Undiscovered Country characters, and I think we can agree that all the characters in the Undiscovered Country are much wiser 
and better developed than you know what we're accustomed to and of course the original series where everything focused on Kirk Spock McCoy all the time so yeah Uh, and you mentioned Scotty and I would say that there's an audio version of this book as well that you can get from Audible and it's read by James Doohan and and I have to say, you know, he there are moments where James Dewan really sounds like William Shatner in the way that he says some of Kirk's lines, but he really, really pulled off the Scotty. I mean, it was I, I could have sworn that it was actually Scotty. Man, that's great. That's good to hear. Because uh, <laughs> Scotty's not easy to do. Um, <laughs> well, I'm glad we both like the book, Chris. Um, why don't we tell everybody? where they can find us online if they'd like to comment talk about the book any of our news items anything that we've covered this week definitely yeah if you want to send us a message you can go to trek.fm slash contact there's a form there choose to send to a show and choose literary treks and that will come to us you can also go to the forums at trek.fm slash forums there's a section there for books and novels. There's one for literary treks. So you can join in a conversation with us and other listeners. Talk about Shadows on the Sun or anything else that we talked about today or any other books you want to talk about. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash trekfm and on Twitter under username trekfm. And Matthew, what if people want to look you up and talk some Star Trek novels with you? Well, if you'd like to do that, please follow me on Twitter at MattRushing02. It's a great place to find me. Uh, I do the book reviews as well on the site. Uh, in fact, by the time this goes live, we'll have the review for the audiobook of Into Darkness, which I've just finished and uh, should be edited out by then, uh, as well as uh, doing the orb with you, Chris, on uh, Deep Space Nine. We talk about all the time on the orb. Uh, And so if you are a fan of Deep Space Nine or just need to be a fan of Deep Space Nine, allow Chris and I to encourage you in that um, way. (laughs) Some people might say, brainwash you into liking Deep Space Nine. (laughs) Brainwashing, liking, it's all the same, Chris. (laughs) Chris, if if, if people would like to be brainwashed by you, where can we find you online? (laughs) Well, go to Twitter and watch my avatar. It, it has this little spiraling red line that will just hypnotize you. And that allows me to send you those messages like, DS9 is wonderful. You should watch DS9. That's why a Shervin never looks at my avatar. <laughs> but now you can find me on Twitter. My username is C Brian Jones. That's the letter C and Brian with a Y. And you can find me pretty much everywhere in social media under that username and if you give me a follow send me an at reply and uh, tell me that you followed and i'd be happy to talk to you about star trek and also um if you like the show we would love for you to go by itunes and leave us a rating and leave us a written review we love to hear what you think about the show and it helps others find the show in the very mysterious ranking system of the itunes music store and the podcast section And lastly, we'd like to invite you to support our sponsors. First of all, go to squarespace.com and use offer code TREK6 to get 10% off your new purchase on lifetime accounts of the very best CMS and hosting that you'll find anywhere on the internet. And also TrekFan. Now, TrekFan isn't just a Star Trek fan club, it's a challenge. 
You'll explore new places, learn new things, and collaborate with other fans to solve puzzles, complete real-life mission objectives, and win great prizes. To face your first challenge and find out more, head on over to trickfan.org. Well, thank you so much for joining us, and until next time, live long and read on. You call that light reading? To each his own, number one.